You're listening to Don't Waste Water. Where can we park 400 million? And I'm like, we're working on it. <laughs> it's not really kind of Silicon Valley gospel in the venture industry to go around investing in plumbing companies. We want to be the first check, eventually the first check that the smartest entrepreneurs in the world who are starting from the very start of their idea. We want to meet them the day after they decide to commit to the company and be a funding partner all the way through that evolution. That's like the mission of BIV is to find, fund and support the best entrepreneurs in the world. Hello, bonjour and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. If you want to be smart, first avoid doing dumb things. At least I felt like I had an unfair advantage in terms of being able to understand what dumb looks like. What is a bad idea? in water. It's a quote on our website from, from Charlie Munger is that everybody is trying to be brilliant. I'm just trying to not be idiotic, but it's harder than most people think. I'm your host, Antoine Balter, and in today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Tom Ferguson as my guest. Like, seed stage investing in water has historically been pretty difficult. There's a wonderful quote from Steve Close, who's been a mentor and advisor and friend and for ages. Water remains a pretty productive place to lose money. To which I went, oh, Christ. But he's right. But our job as a specialist, miss nothing. We have to see everything that is created in the world to make sure that we really understand, which is not allowed to miss things. Tom is the founder and managing partner at Burnt Island Ventures. If you're a better entrepreneur, you select better pain points, you understand the value proposition deeper, you really understand products, you understand how to get it into the market. You can outpace those 12 to 16 years by years. You can cut that in half, more than half, judging by some of the data that we're seeing. All of the stuff that goes wrong within company building happens in the gap between the actual reality of the situation and the perceived reality of the situation. All the bad stuff happens in that gap. In terms of the valuation thing, I almost can't overstate the degree to which it is not and should not be important for me. So we need markups and people need to be on the way up. It's like great, but nothing is set until the liquidity event happens. One of the major LPs in the, the venture business calls it the moolah in the cooler. Burnt Island Ventures finds, funds and supports the best water entrepreneurs in the world. Are you accusing me of being a cheat? In August 2019, Brian Iverson, the founder of Chimbria Capital, wrote an article titled Why Venture Capital is Failing in Water, with the following key arguments for that said failure. First, water is difficult and conservative. As a result, exits that would enable an investor to multiply his initial bet by 5 to 10 can't exist repeatedly, the logical consequence of which being that water technology venture investing is a bad idea, that funds pouring money into water technology are wrong, that investors shall rather aim for later funding rounds and private equity, and so on and so on. I'll link you to the article in the description. It's well written and I'm pretty sure it served Chimbra Capital well, but I would personally side with Tom Ferguson when he explains that Brian Iverson is missing a key parameter in his equation, what Tom calls his unfair advantage. Let me take a cooking analogy to outline it. Baking a souffle is difficult. If you've never taken any cooking classes, you might once make a great one. But as you won't know what made this one a success, you'll have a hard time reproducing it and it might turn out to be a waste of flour, butter, eggs, milk and cheese. On the other hand, if you know the precise quantities it takes, the exact way to prepare the ingredients and the ideal temperature and time it should stay in the oven, you won't have a perfect souffle all the time, 
but it will repeatedly work out great. That's Tom's unfair advantage. A bit like Kim Baker, Gaetan Susne or Scott Bryan you've heard on that microphone through the seasons, his time spent developing early stage entrepreneurs in a water accelerator and the leading at that, Imagine H2O, has enabled him to shape and develop a sixth sense as to what it takes an entrepreneur to have optimized chances at a moonshot in the demanding field of water tech. Is it a guarantee of success? No. But from some of the recent milestones reached by some of the stars in Burnt Island Ventures' portfolio, such as Zviterko and their $33 million Series A, or Aclarity and their $16 million Series A, we can give Tom the credit that his team seems on track with their vision and investment thesis. In today's conversation, you'll get key insights into the water venture world in general and Burnt Island Ventures investment thesis in particular. You'll know when to follow your gut instinct as an investor, what patterns to look for in companies and entrepreneurs, the importance of founder market fit, the four key strengths of better entrepreneurs, but also portfolio building, diversity in technology, business models, customer pain points, and of course, getting to know Tom and his path better. I had a blast recording this episode with Tom at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You'll hear the typical New York sirens in the back from time to time. Sorry for that. But I'm sure you'll enjoy it as much as I did. If you do, please take this episode and share it with a colleague, a friend, your boss, or your team. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Then, if you'd wish to hear even more from Tom, I'd recommend you also subscribe to The Fundamental Molecule, the podcast he started last November. I loved episode 5 with Wayne Barn, and I'll meet you on the other side. Sorry to interrupt again, this short host read to tell you that this could be your ad if we were to team up and become partners. Get your brand in front of an audience in 146 countries with the US, UK and Canada as the top three by the numbers on a podcast channel that's been repeatedly sustainability number one in Israel, Singapore and the Baltics, in the top 10 in France and the Nordics and almost continuously in the top 50 in the US, UK or Australia. Want to explore partnership options? Then reach out to Antoine at dww.show. The link is in the description and onto the podcast. Hi Tom, welcome to the show. It's really, really nice to be here. I'm a big fan. <laughs> Me as well. So it's, it's an encounter between fans. Great. Okay. <laughs> we are in the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, which leads me to a very simple first question. You're running a California-based company out of Brooklyn. Yeah. How's that possible? That's the wonders of modern, like, digital magic, I guess. We moved here 18 months ago. It really is nice to be in the Botanic Garden to do, well, anytime, do, especially do something like this. I first moved to California in 2014, basically straight out of business school, and we had an amazing time, and the time there completely changed my life. It could be basically rewired my attitude to risk, especially professionally. California is, like, one of the untold facts. It's a bit like living on the moon. It's miles away from everything. And my parents are still in London, and my wife's parents are in D.C., and we have family here. So we turned over the table and moved to Brooklyn 18 months ago and I can heartily recommend it. Wherever my laptop is, that's where Burnt Island Ventures is. Well, less so now, actually. That's very insulting to all of my wonderful teammates. Burnt Island Ventures is now a woven web of four, soon to be five, people who live in Seattle, New York, Raleigh, Durham, sort of Frankfurt now, but was in Paris for a bit. And then in Colorado. So we are a distributed, but I think mighty team uh, of people and wherever our laptops are, we're very much a virtual business. Because you've grown the team, you're 
now the second burnt islander which i interview because i had wayne barn on that microphone but before him joining you god i'm gonna have to live up to wayne one nightmare <laughs> no wayne's been really fantastic as our as one of our venture partners one of the most fun things about actually building this thing is that i get to now work directly with the people that i admire most in this industry it's really fun i don't know why they said yes but a lot of them did wayne paul obviously christine who's our our partner now david stanton ivy newian who was at uh, imagination Oil, was also a member of our investment committee nicole neiman brady from renewable resources group steve gluck peter fisk such a wonderful group of people who have really helped me get this going and in a slightly more mature phase i've looked a bit up your path to prepare for that conversation okay There was the part on you, Burnt Island. I've been reading your blog for at least the past two years. Great. I knew about your Imagination Tour story. I've had Scott Bryan on that microphone. We discussed it a bit. Great stuff. I didn't know that there was an important step before, <laughs> which is you are the one who wrote the first CDP report. Yeah. I just did a piece on the last CDP report, uh -huh. which just showed the $2.3 trillion sure. opportunity in water. I'm betting that by next year, the next CDP report will say there's a $3 trillion opportunity in water. It was the story of the very first ones. It's kind of dumb luck. I guess I sort of choose that word very carefully. I was um, even more useless then than I am now. And I was working for the really exceptional consultancy ERM. And I was the cheapest person in the building when they took on a pro bono piece of work for the carbon disclosure project. A friend of mine marched up to me with a zip drive and said, here you go, write a report out of this. And so I spent you know, three months with the data and strategies of 150, the global 300, and then in very much in, a, in the land of the blind kind of situation, I knew more about water sustainability on the corporate level than anyone else because nobody knew or cared anything about that. <laughs> And it was, it was difficult, right? Because it was 2008, people were putting themselves back together as businesses. They weren't thinking about their water footprint. I very consciously chose sustainability at the beginning of my career, but I thought water was super interesting because it was a juxtaposition of so obviously totally vital and totally overlooked. And I thought there was a really interesting kind of juxtaposition there that I filed away for the next whatever, five years until I re-specialized in, in 2015. You then moved on to work for Imagination 2 You've <laughs> built the programming there. <laughs> I'm going to take like 2,000 million shortcuts. Great. In your investment thesis at Burnell and Venture, you define uh -huh. how what you've built over the years at Imagination 2 Mm -hmm. kind of created a special sauce. And now that's me adding that. You got frustrated because Imagine H2O doesn't invest in companies. They have this zero equity approach. And you said, I want to go the extra mile, hence Burnt Island Ventures. You're baiting me. Um, I wouldn't characterize it as frustrated. I had a really wonderful experience at Imagine H2O and I am deeply, profoundly grateful that I was able to have the time and space to get to truly diminished marginal surprises. In terms of the job that I do, it's really, really important to have a high end to have seen a lot of companies because then you develop this muscle memory of what you're looking for, what the four red flags are, what are the characteristics. And actually people always say, don't invest with your gut, but your gut is actually really important because your gut is the synthesis of all of the stuff that you've learned. It's an instinctual reaction to what you're seeing in terms of the pattern recognition. And Imagine H2O afforded me the opportunity to do that, work with ridiculously smart people, all of whom were much, much better than me, to try a whole bunch of things. I don't want to sound like an idiot saying this, but it taught me the importance of service we didn't have many reasons for really smart people to come and join our program right we didn't have we weren't enticing them with the check we won't you know do whatever it is what we did have was the beginnings of a track record 
and a brand when I turned up. I cheated, right? There was five years of amazing work from Scott and Tamin and all of the team that came before me. So to fast forward to the end of it, the genesis of Burnt Island came from a very honest entrepreneurial place. I saw a value proposition that needed to be provided to a set of customers, a seed fund that could make a difference in the trajectory and lives of an increasingly able group of entrepreneurs. And I felt that because of my experience at Imagine H2O that I had an unfair advantage in terms of being able to go and build that organization to provide that value proposition to that set of customers. And I thought that the unfair insights and information that I had as a result of the work at Imagine H2O would build a pretty credible case to a bunch of people who look to invest in people like me who don't know anything about water, which is basically all of them. When you mention unfair advantage, at yeah. what stage does it characterize the most? Is it in your selection process of the right companies to sit in, or is it then in the later stages? Well, like everything else, I'm a huge fan of the mathematical principle of inversion, which is that I think that especially in water venture, and I have a feeling we're going to get into this, it's a little bit like the Hippocratic principle, which is first do no harm. Like if you want to be smart, first avoid doing dumb things. Being close to the sector and understanding a lot, and it comes back to this idea of diminishing marginal surprises, right? Is that at least I felt like I had an unfair advantage, again, that idea, an unfair advantage in terms of being able to understand what dumb looks like. What is a bad idea? in water. And we you, we both know like a hundred million different examples of, of what this might look like. It's a quote on our website from, from Charlie Munger is that everybody's trying to be brilliant. I'm just trying to not be idiotic, but it's harder than most people think. Good things happen when you really first avoid the landmines and then hopefully you can put brilliant on top of it. There's another great quote about investing from a guy called Richard Oldfield. It's literally the title of his book. It's simple, but not easy. What we're looking for is a sort of a set of characteristics amongst the, the companies that they're sort of taking care of the downside risk from a whole bunch of different characteristics, which again, we can kind of get into. But when you see that little sprinkle of potential like upside magic or some way of, they've identified a mechanism by which they have a credible story about how they will be able to grow fast enough to justify like what I need, which is basically a 10 year kind of hold period to become a really, really big company. You know, it's very, very exciting when you see it. But again, like the intellectual architecture of it, it came from a whole bunch of different sources, but it was all through that experience at Imagine H2O. And it's really just what we've tried to enact and, and build upon as we've taken it out into the for-profit, money on the line, money where your mouth is kind of stuff that we're hopefully doing reasonably well now. You mentioned seed fund. Yeah. Another way would be to say venture investors? Well, I mean, venture investors are of all stripes. I mean, the best way of understanding it is that the sort of passage of funding through a company's life cycle, the nomenclature is basically angel, which is first check, let's go and start the dream. Friends Pre and family. Exactly, friends and family, yeah. Pre-seed, which is um, the sort of the first small kind of equity round where there's a small fire burning and it's putting another little twigs on it. Then there's the seed stuff, which is still very early, usually pre-revenue. And then Series A, which was, the reason it's called Series A is it was the first round of financing. And then BCD, which is all the growth stuff. But it's all venture investing. We have a slightly higher uh, risk factor, though I would argue that, that the way in which we appraise companies reduces that significantly. And that's the whole point of due diligence. But the angel's the most risky highest potential returns because your entry valuation is so low. When you're doing Series C, which is growth venture investing, everything's basically sort of baked. You're just trying to get in like relatively de-risked money into something that is growing so fast that even very high valuations look cheap in retrospect. So like the Googles of the world. That's not our game. It may become so one day, depending on what happens to the field of startups in, in water. But yeah, I classify it all as, as venture investing. It's riskier than some people might like. 
So seed and series A, that's your playground. Pre-seed, seed, series A. We want to be the first check, eventually the first check that the smartest entrepreneurs in the world who are starting from the very start of their idea, we want to meet them the day after they decide to commit to the company and be a funding partner all the way through that evolution. That's like the mission of BIV is to find, fund and support the best entrepreneurs in the world. You mentioned 10 year hold. So that's your horizon. I'm not the biggest specialist there is, but it sounds like slightly longer than traditional venture. Is that true? Yeah, especially in Europe. In Europe, they tend to be a little bit more kind of impatient. I think one of the nice things about doing this in the US is that people are used to 10 year timeframes. Technically ours is eight, but there are two, there's sort of a two year extensions that are at my behest. We can extend it further than that if we want to hold on for positions that were growing or like for whatever reason it would be, but that's part of the oversight of what's called an LP advisory committee. And so we can extend it longer, but 10 years is about right. It gives you enough time to, especially for water, it gives you enough time to get in early in a company that can then figure itself out establish itself and then start growing in a meaningful way and hopefully compound up to a place where, you know, with a revenue multiple of not that high that you can have people that come along to pay for that company, put a lot of cash back into the pockets of the um, investors, that, especially that came in early. You're super familiar with Polo Kalan's thesis on the dynamics of water innovation. Yeah. We just chatted about it before starting the recording. Love Paul. He's showing how you have 10 years of R&D, so you, your product is not even in the market. And from the moment you start with really your product, it takes 12 to 16 years, assuming you have a winner to be in the middle of the market. Yeah. So that means you need to whether have a way to make everything much faster yeah. or you have to leave them in the wild, assuming that they are on the right track and so that you can get some valuation back. That is absolutely what the data says. In many ways, the fundamental question for what we're doing is that has something changed, which will, can mean that there will be meaningful outliers from additions to that data set? Can stuff get big an awful lot faster? That's the sort of central question. And it comes down to timing. A lot of what we're doing is that like, like seed stage investing in water has historically been pretty difficult. There's a wonderful quote from Steve Close, who's been a mentor and advisor and friend and for ages, water remains a pretty productive place to lose money, <laughs> to which I went, oh, Christ. But he's right. If you come charging into this without sort of knowing what you're doing, it's really easy to tread on landmines, partially because what seems obvious actually isn't. What seems obvious is really difficult for a whole bunch of different reasons. I just had this conversation with quite a large Silicon Valley fund the other day. But to go back to, to, to the ESCO, what I noticed in 2020, and I suppose Megan Glover at 120 was probably at the vanguard of this, but there's, she's now by no means alone, is that we were starting to see people build revenues faster than anybody had ever seen it before. And I realized that the thing that brought all of these opportunities together was that the quality of the founders and no shade on anybody who's started a company before, it's just a, the, the field is getting stronger. Like the quality of the founders was night and day by 2020 than it was in 2018. When you change that key variable, which is the central decision maker, but it's even before making the decisions about the company, it's about the selection of the company. It's about the identification of the pain point, an understanding of the value proposition that needs to be provided and to solve that pain point, and then an understanding of the product that needs to be built to deliver that value proposition. Those three elements, if you're a better entrepreneur, you select better pain points, you understand the value proposition deeper, you really understand products, you understand how to get it into the market, you can outpace those 12 to 16 years by years. You can cut that in half, more than half, judging by some of the data that we're seeing. The quality of the founder is a key variable in 
whether or not there's going to be adoption, whether or not there are going to be returns, whether or not these companies are going to grow fast. So you need a consistent way to identify outliers and to bet on the outliers. Yeah, essentially. I think you need to have a consistent mode of appraisal. Part of that is the is the person an outlier? Do they have some kind of inherent advantage of what they're trying to do? Do they think about this in a way that I agree with, that in terms of all of the companies that I've seen, that they are as good as we have ever seen? in terms of the way in which they're structuring their thought process. Because we don't have evidence, right? We're investing so early. The job is not to like judge whether or not they have product market fit, is are they exhibiting the leading indicators of product market fit? You coined the term entrepreneur market fit. That's the thing you're looking after. I mean, for every single investment you've done, there's a blog entry on your website. It does get repetitive, doesn't it? And in all these blog entries, the one common trait is the entrepreneur is amazing. Yeah, it is. We have to believe that at the beginning. And mercifully, we've been right so far. Um, even with the stuff that stumbled and all the rest of it, really, really phenomenal bunch of entrepreneurs. The reason why founder market fit, entrepreneur market fit is so important, and you could argue that this is true for life in general, but all of the stuff that goes wrong within company building happens in the gap between the actual reality of the situation and the perceived reality of the situation. All the bad stuff happens in that gap. And the reason why uh, founder market fit is so important is that there is no gap. If somebody has been living their pain point for the last 10 years, they know everything about it, upside down, back to front, inside out. The other articulation of this is that those people couldn't build a product no one wanted if they tried. There's a difference between that and having a big enough market. There are lots of people who are like looking to, like they've got wonderful pain points, really understand the value proposition, they've built a great product. The market is just too small and we still can't do that. We're subject to all of the sort of slightly hand-wavy venture laws as much as, as anyone else. But yeah, founder market fit is, is often crucial. There's one caveat to it though. You can create market fit as a person by doing an unseemly amount of work. So you can interview essentially your way into really understanding, but very few people actually do the work. Going back to Megan, this was one of the first times I'd seen an outsider do this. Marketing background, decided she wanted to do something about water. And then I think it was about 350 people she spoke to. She was so bored by the end of it. And she was exactly right, because when you get bored, that's where you're, again, you're seeing diminishing marginal surprises. So you can get to a very thin gap between reality and your understanding of reality, but that's why founder market fit is important. That's a super interesting point because it's something I discussed with uh, Anne Perrault from Evoqua, uh -huh. who was sharing how it's not just about interviewing people, it's about ensuring that they don't mislead you. There is a book I love about that, which is The Mom Test by Rob Fitzpatrick, which is a methodology to ask things that even your mom can't lie to you so that you get feedback in a structured manner. Because 350 interviews, if you ask just the questions in a leading way, you might oh, no, you've get total crap out of it. And I'm surprised that the first feedback you give about the ones which might not be fully aligned or there's nothing for you is that the market is not big enough. Because to me, the biggest hurdle for water entrepreneurs is solving a problem that doesn't exist. You have so many pitches which start with 2.1 oh, billion God. people yeah. miss water on earth. Hence, my super tech does this and that. And there's <laughs> absolutely no link between those two events. No, no, it drives me nuts. I literally call it the 2.1 billion problem whenever we see it which is very patronizing, and I don't mean it to be patronizing. It's just that pain points are really specific. The 2.1 billion problem is a tragedy, but it is singularly unhelpful as an intellectual basis for a company. It's not even context. It's a weird and lazy attempt, I think, 
at trying to set context for like what happens next. And, you know, in the same time, I don't want to necessarily take us down a kind of a rabbit hole. There's a kind of, there's a really interesting sort of setup in the, in the venture kind of process. One of the ways in which we look at people who are coming to us with ideas is that for that interaction, we are their customer. Coming to me with something like the 2.1 billion or like anything that doesn't like put appropriate context is kind of, it's not good. It's not a good way to treat your customer. You've got to understand when you're in front of a customer, like for somebody who's going to be really good at selling and all founders have to sell out of the gate, right? You, there's no way around initial founder sales. If somebody's doing that, it's kind of a weird leading indicator that they're going to do other stuff badly. It's kind of a bad intellectual like place to start or logical place to start. And if someone's starting in a bad logical place, they're gonna do other stuff that's like weird as well. Whereas when you see the antithesis of that, which is, I don't know, zeptility. Like this is a picture of a water operator's desk in a town of 10,000 people. And it's like a hide back chair with a wheel missing. And it's like a 1997 Dell PC and stacks of paper, post-it notes, boots on the floor, jacket, like everywhere hard hat, some kind of like Budweiser commercial on the side. I'm not exaggerating. Somebody starts there, I'm like, ah, you've told me a bunch of really important things. Firstly, you've told me that you really understand your customer, or at least you're, I'm interested in how well you understand your customer. Secondly, you understand tourist storytelling because you're giving me a world in which to situate all the rest of the information that's going to come after it. And then I'm thinking, well, that's really helpful for me. It's also when you're selling this to people, you're not going to start with a picture of their office because they know their office, but you are, I can have confidence that you're going to start in the right place when you're telling that story to them. That's what's rare. And I just going back to the 2.1 billion thing again, it's a, it's a piece of feedback we always give, give people whenever we see it, which is if you feel the need with other investors as well, but like, just be careful because you know that we're a water investor. You really shouldn't be starting in that place. You need to assume that we are already there. I will steal your 2.1 billion problem because I was doing it as the one person of China fallacy, which is there's a market for it because if one person of China takes it, it's okay. I'm, I'm good enough. It's the same thing here. It's like 2.1 billion. It's the billion same people. thing. It's but the same thing. Yeah. That we call if we just capture 1% of the market problem. Again, it's at best lazy. What you want to see in terms of the overall opportunity is somebody who's actually sat back and thought, what is actually an opportunity? Like an opportunity is like the interaction between the overall potential. And you've got to be very careful about what you choose as the overall potential. I actually busted one of our companies doing this the other day. They were like, the entire construction market is like $4 trillion. And I'm like, are we sure we're using that as a reference point? Are you sure? But it's the a priori bottom up. What are you selling multiplied by how much? How many of those things do you think you're going to be selling over time? What is the actual possible and honest and clearly appraised and researched number of like the genuine overall real credible addressable market? When someone's done that maths, I'm in. But as soon as I hear, if we just capture 1% of wastewater treatment plants, I'm like, bah. You mentioned you're a water investor. I would use a different term. I would say you're, if not the, one of the very few water investor there were definitely some really excellent people and i just actually found out earlier today that a really wonderful guy in canada is just about to close a 30 million fund there are a few of us and everybody's doing awesome work but especially in that very early stage there are not not so many of us there are there are others but i appreciate the sentiment i guess <laughs> my question is you're saying that you see an asymmetry in that market which is only 
going to grow because the two ends have been missing for a while. Good entrepreneurs were missing and then the exit perspective were missing. You see the good entrepreneurs coming and you say that by the end of this decade, the exit perspective is going to be there as well. What makes you so confident in that and how can you support those claims? So the first one is that there will always be a market for good companies. It really shouldn't matter that the company is being built in water or aviation or farming or consumer products or whatever it is. Good companies that have good margin profiles, have growing revenue, are growing reasonably fast. Somebody is want to going to want to own those cash flows. So that's the first thing, right? Is that like, that is what a company that will have demand looks like. The question then becomes, can you build those in water? And I would argue that in water, just given the characteristics of a whole bunch of different things, actually has a series of overlooked advantages. So for example, Doppler, is doing like mid seven figures in bookings and has churned, I think, $25,000 this year. Once they're in, they don't get installed. And they also have a net revenue retention of 244%, which is basically every year, the average size of their customer grows by 2.5x. So you have a combination of not only top line growth, but you have an engine underneath that when you get in, you get natural growth from the stuff that you've already sold. So your customer acquisition cost is through the floor. But crucially, once you're in, nobody uninstalls you. And so if you take it back to like, what does an attractive company look like? When you look at it through the lens of private equity or even you know, incumbents within the water sector, that is a really amazing moat. The once you're in, you're in, like the world, the sort of the commercial world, like really relies on like lifetime values. And lifetime values in water are really long. I'm gonna go here, because I think you'll appreciate it. Charlie Munger who is Warren Buffett's partner. One of his side gigs is the chairman of something called The Daily Journal, which used to be a newspaper and is actually a little bit like a kind of a mini Berkshire. They have a array of different kind of holdings. But the core revenue of their business comes from the legally required dissemination of legal data from counties. So it's something that has to happen by law. Legal data has to go out into the world. They get 100% of their contracts from RFPs. And we are aware of RFPs, right? This is sort of like how the water sector works. All venture investors like hate RFPs. They hate long sales cycles. They think it's terrible. You have to be able to like fly off the shelves magically and grow to the moon and all this shit. Charlie Munger, who's probably one of the smartest people in the world, loves RFPs, loves them. Because if you're good at them, you win all of them. And once you've won them, they're never uninstalling you. And so you get repeatable revenue streams over time, basically forever. And it prints money. Like your customer acquisition cost is amortized over years and years and years and years and years of cash flows so your unit economics on the way in are amazing the stuff that is chosen as a reason why water is crap is actually really easy to put on its head and say if you can do it if you can get through that morass what you've built is an amazing set of advantages for a business so going to the exit like idea there is a world in which you can build great businesses kind of within water it's just a question of like can you grow fast enough to be able to get an exit a liquidity event that justifies the price you paid for those shares in terms of the exit market if you believe that there will always be a demand for good companies that there are characteristics of water businesses that are actually really 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 attractive that there's already a trillion dollars of capex and opex and so whether it's the current incumbent slash strategics whether more and more high quality companies with very deep balance sheets are going to get more and more interested in water everyone from siemens coming back in schneider electric mitsubishi whatever it would be and then we had nx filtration aquaporin energy and 
2021. If you build good companies, public markets are going to want to have access to the potential growth profile and all the rest of the stuff that makes these companies credible. There are four areas of exit. The problem is none of them are proven yet. And so for my investors, the 99 amazingly generous and like really excellent, and I think very wise and handsome and beautiful people who uh, decided to take a chance on us at the beginning of this journey, they happen to agree with me that we're setting the table now for liquidity window in seven to 10 years time. And everything I'm hearing from very, very large bodies of capital, very, very large companies is that this was a reasonable to make but you do have to be careful on entry valuations it's not a good idea to go and sort of buy shares in a company at kind of a hundred million pre-money expecting it to be a 1.5 billion dollar like exit is that likely no is it possible like very like small but in terms of the the way in which that kind of transaction is is set up at the moment i see absolutely no reason why there can't be a very healthy market which now for me in four to seven years time. I have had so many conversations that are basically along the lines of, where can we park 400 million? And I'm like, we're working on it. <laughs> like not many places at the moment, but I think they're coming. I think that was the, the conclusion of, of Christopher Gasson at the end of this year's Global Water Summit, that from his experience, it was the first time in history that the investment flow in water was decorrelated from the global economic trend. The global economic trend is slowing down, investments are slowing down, not in water. Mm -hmm. So that goes along your... Well, Chris is a very smart guy. No, I think he's right. One of the weird things to consider though, this is, is timeframes. Everybody's sort of, you know, like, well, are, you, are you worried about like interest rates and kind of the, you know, economy cooling down, everything going sideways? Absolutely not. It's great that this is happening now. It's not great it's happening now because there are real people's livelihoods at risk and, and all that stuff. I don't mean to be flipped, but... Like, I would much rather it happen now than in our liquidity window. So the time when we're really looking for these companies to exit. So actually it happening now is kind of a good thing. But also, yeah, we can't get up, sort of tied up with macro stuff. One of your routes for exit IPO has... Wouldn't that be nice? You mentioned the cool kids. Alex Filtration, Aquaporin. Arguably, they are on a solid path. And I believe they will get to places. Use the capital wisely, yeah. But if you look at the valuation, they're down compared to the IPO. Like considerably down and yeah, you have then even stronger outliers like like LickTech who's almost flat when it was Nasdaq's darling when they rang the bell two or three years ago uh -huh. I guess it's not about name and shaming those companies at all no no out. It's, but my, my point is they could be also just breaking things which kind of then disproves one of the exits paths which you envision being mature by seven or ten years it's, yeah it's possible How do you which is why risk? it's really important that when we're talking about the four exit pathways, we're like, look, IPO is possible. Like, who knows? But it's not off the table. Whereas previously, I think the assumption was that like, I mean, when you, when you were looking at this in like 2016 or whatever, and somebody brought up the idea of like a cut, like a water company IPOing, it wouldn't, you know, no, right? We've moved on to the point where it's on the list. Are things happening where stock tickers are going in? different positions but like both i mean just to take you know an exfiltration and aquaporin they both when you're that early you're still building the business underneath you you know that's not necessarily written if the performance is there if the margin profile is there people will want exposure to it and then there's also just as a kind of an aside it's a very interesting phenomenon within the market so for whatever the, the spin out of veralto there's kind of built-in demand 
for it. People who want allocation to an index are going to put something of that size in that index, which automatically puts demand not only kind of at the IPO, but also as people are adding more money to the water indices as a natural tailwind, like to that stock. And it still has to perform, but people are going to want more public markets exposure to water. Anyway, there's a whole kind of bunch of stuff over there, but you're absolutely right. And it's very, and it's an, it's an astute point that like things going badly in the public markets is not good for me because I need to be able to go and point to things that are like, look, liquidity pod pathway go good. Like, you know, this is something that we want to go and kind of do. I always come back to, are there going to be options on the tables for really, really strong companies? The answer is yes. The job is to build really, really strong companies. Then you have to get strategic about the exits and build the relationships two years ahead of time, all that kind of stuff. But the job doesn't change. It's build the best company that you possibly can. And then the rest of it will take care of itself. I'll take a ton of shortcuts again. Edix Filtration, Aquaporin, LigTech, all of those are membrane companies. And it seems that a natural path for a membrane company is to go to IPO. That's my shortcut. Super high shortcut. <laughs> Your very first investment mm -hmm. was in a membrane company. It was. Which has defied all the records so far on their track. They are the largest Series A ever in the water sector. I had the pleasure to have Alex Rappaport on that microphone some months ago now, even twice this year. He's good, isn't he? You invested nice in Svitico. Yes. What I'm interested in is, yep. first, how do you pick them? And second, in that record-breaking Series A, is that for you an achievement, a risk because you need to invest along the new investors? Just an anecdote and doesn't really matter because you're still in and as long as you don't exit, doesn't matter. I, how, how's that for you? It's a really good question. I, mean, I, I don't say that uh, lightly, more or less sort of playing for time. I'll do the second one uh, first. Alex got a you know, he ran a really fantastic process. There was uh, some feedback from a really, really major fund that has been invested in some epochal companies. These are people who are not messing around. Their feedback on Alex was basically, where the hell did you dig up this guy? Alex is really good. And the company's really good as well. In terms of the valuation thing, I almost can't overstate the degree to which it is not and should not be important for me. So we need markups and people need to be on the way up. It's like, great, but nothing is set until the liquidity event happens. One of the major LPs in the, the venture business calls it the moolah in the cooler, is that like marking up MOIC is a great waypoint on a story and it's helpful for people to feel kind of the wealth effects in their options and sometimes to do secondaries, to be able to, you know, take some money off and buy a house and whatever, as long as the behavior is egregious. And it's like, it's helpful to have this kind of transactive thing. But until, until the story is done, it doesn't matter. And I've always been very clear with my LPs is that you will see upticks in MOIC and everything's kind of going fine on that front and all of that kind of stuff. But I would not mind if our companies were not re-rated a single time until we exited, that we were the last check that they took and they built a brilliant company just with that money and they compounded it over time. And then the MOIC, so the multiple on invested capital, sorry, I'm immediately into the jargon the multiple on invested capital stays at one which means that there hasn't been any re-rating of nobody's bought an extra share at a higher price and then the overall outcome being 36 or whatever and there's nothing that happens on my kind of reporting to my investors like in between because it means that we still own the percentage of the company that we did before because as you add capital onto companies you get diluted and that's like fine that's just well you know it is what happens 
I don't want to say I'm necessarily a superstitious person, but I'm a big believer that nothing is baked until it's baked. And so like from a certain point of view, what, you know, Alex is right through running a really excellent investment process. And he's taken on some really wonderful capital providers in the process, which will be very, very helpful to the process of building that company. But it's also a lot of promises with all of these with rounds that go very well comes comes pressure. And Alex is very well equipped to deal with that pressure. He's he's got really, really fantastic overall process, which is a nice segue magically to the first part of your question. What we're looking for, we, we think a lot about entrepreneurial process. Like, are you making the right decisions at the right junctures in light of the facts that are out there in front of you? And you can read about this in the launch blog at Zwitico. It's on our it's on our Burnline Adventures blog. But Alex was very he was punchy when I first met him at WebTech. He was really like convinced that they were going to go to the moon and that he had technology that was going to change everything and it was going to be absolutely awesome. And I thought, all right, sunshine, maybe. But he was clearly like really smart. And so we selected him for the accelerator and he was a really great participant and like all the rest of it. But the most encouraging thing, the thing that led when we finally had capital to like deploy was the way in which he reacted to his first major setback, which was basically knew that he was going to be reclaiming water from like grease traps basically in restaurants. And then when they got their first wastewater thing, they put it on the membe and it just went splat, right? There was no, there was basically kind of, it, it just wasn't going to work. And rather than panic and go to the first sort of possible kind of clutchy clutchy like any life vest or whatever which is what most entrepreneurs would do he just stopped he was like we need to run a process we need to get ourselves a lot of different wastewater and we need to understand where this thing works because he realized that in terms of the the entrepreneurial opportunity it's really dangerous starting with a product because you're then looking for the application of the product rather than responding to the pain point he stopped they ran, I think, 270 or something wastewaters from 86 different sources. And they identified the two that they were going to start in and then the four that they were going to move into next and then the seven that came after. And it was so illustrative of the importance of running a structured process because he just solved a whole bunch of problems. He was like, ah, oh, that's kind of my market map. Like, that's my market sequence. And if he hadn't done that and he hadn't been like, oh, I'm just going to do a project for X, Y, Z and rah, because you're like feeling the kind of pain of failure. And it's a really difficult thing to do. It's a really difficult thing to do. And that he did that was a super important, like leading indicator of a whole bunch of other behaviors that he has exhibited since, which is great. The last thing I will say is that like the performance of the membrane at the bench top was so striking that we were... It was basically a, a binary thing. It was in six days before we invested, the data on their first like field use was going to be in. And if it was good, the company was going to jump in price considerably. And so we decided that the likelihood of that happening was high enough for the expected value to like really work for us to do an expedited first close and me to get very bossy with more of my, more of my LPs to be able to ship this check, well, not only to Twitter but also to a variety of other people. But yeah, it was just ahead of a, a kind of a value accretion event. Your relationship to Sweetico started in your Imagine H2O times, uh -huh. which I grasp what an accelerator does with a company. Sure. What I'd like to understand here is once you have your different hat on, you are the investor, mm -hmm. you've invested in the company, mm -hmm. there are different type of investors. There's the investor who goes in the trunk of the car <laughs> and is just there in case you can open the trunk and, and ask him for something, but he would never proactively go at the entrepreneur. That's and then you're the one which are really holding the steering wheel together with the entrepreneur. Where would you put yourself and what's a best practice for you? Well, it's never holding this. 
steering wheel. Like what you have to do when you're getting to know a company is you have to get yourself to a position of trust about the marginal decision that the founder is going to make. That's it. Like company building, marketing and outcome numbers and whatever. It's just a sequence of decisions. It really is. Like it's from, from what are we going to work on all the way to who are we going to choose to underwrite our IPO or whatever. It's just a sequence of decisions. And so the job really is like finding the decision maker. So if you're too close to anything that's going, also like I would be wildly overestimating my capabilities. I am filled with awe every day about how good our founders are and how difficult their job is and how much easier my job is than theirs. And I am so far away from having the right to take a whole bunch of, well, of like active like overall decisions. There are times, and we've mercifully been free of these, but there are, there are times, and if I get to do this for many decades, there will be times when I have to do stuff that I don't like. The founders are not my customers. The founders are our partners. My customers are people who have entrusted me with their capital. It's a very serious responsibility, despite what you, a lot of people sort of think about investors. This is people trying to accrete cash so that they can buy a, whatever, kid their first home, or like being able to make sure that they are like set up for retirement. This is stuff that they want to be able to, even if they've got a lot of money, they want to be able to go and give it away to like all sorts of really important like charities. There are responsibilities to the capital of uh, our investors, and it's a legal responsibility. The fiduciary duty that I have to my investors is to be a good steward of that capital. Sometimes that will involve finding someone else to drive the bus. Sometimes it will be, look, we actually think that we that this isn't working. This is, won't always be our call. It'll never just be our call. This will always be something that happens at the board level. There'll be time for everybody just to close us down. Let's give the remaining company, clear all of our debts, have an orderly shutdown. We gave it a good shot. We're like, we're like done. It's not always going to be sunlight and rainbows. And it's super important that founders like understand what's getting in. I'm going to be as helpful as I possibly can, but especially if I'm responsible to my LPs. And then if I'm on a board, I'm responsible to all of the shareholders on that cap table, including the people who work for that company. There's going to be times when we disagree and there are going to be times when it gets tough. Did that already happen across your 16 portfolio companies? Where's wood? Do we have any wood? I need to find some wood to, oh, back of your laptop is sort of wooden. No, no, it hasn't. And like mercifully, it's not on the, the radar, but it's part of the deal. On how many of the 16 boards do you sit? We are on the boards of four and observers to an additional four. You know, serving in that capacity is a, is, is a privilege, but it's also a, like, it's a responsibility. You've got a legal requirement for the way in which you conduct yourself. It's not always happy, happy, fun times. Mercifully, generally, has seems to have gone kind of like, you know, well, certainly in the ones that we are close to. But it's really important that in terms of how you work with the founder, that there is an understanding of your respective roles. To go back to your original question, there are a couple of things. Firstly, you need to let entrepreneurs entrepreneur and you need to select good enough entrepreneurs that they're going to go and do good entrepreneuring and that you are there and can be accretive when they need you to be accretive. So sword partner, source of co-investment, those are probably two of our strengths. We're reasonably helpful with the customer side of things as well in terms of introductions. We have, I think, a differentiated ability to put companies up in lights by virtue of the, well, you understand this better than most people, right? The platform that we have kind of built for ourselves within water the water industry, but increasingly we're here at Climate Week. We can be uh, helpful across a whole bunch of areas. But the most important thing is that we're the first people that they come to when they need help or when something goes badly. We cannot ever put a price on bad news. Is it welcome? 
No, but you can never put a price on it. Because if you set off an incentive structure where you scream and shout and you insult them and call them stupid and all the rest of it, they're much less likely to tell you the next time something else goes wrong. And that's the one thing you cannot afford is to have bad news hidden. And so you have to set up that. That's why people talk about trust. And it always sounds very hand wavy and silly, but it isn't. It's about information flow. That's what I you know, try to do. Be the person that people can say the things that they might not want to say to other people. And they'll never be able to see a price for doing that. I swiftly mentioned your 16 companies you're invested in as of now, unless <laughs> there's a new one which I missed. No, nope. no, nope, we're good. What I'm interested in is the way you build that portfolio, because yep. we mentioned Svitico. The next ones, if I take them chronologically, Svitico was the first one, then Ziptility, then Storm Sensor, mm -hmm. Doppler, which you mentioned as well. Mm -hmm. All of those are down your alley. It's what I would have expected from Burnt Island Ventures, and it makes a ton of sense. Not that the others don't, but sure. the yeah, next I, one is yeah. a bit more more surprising to me, which is Enline Energy. Sure. I mean, it's in the name. It's it's an energy company. Yeah. Are you accusing me of being a cheat? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You're asking, like, how does this cuckoo fit in the nest? Yeah. Yeah. With an investment thesis, which is we will be investing in water, not like all the others which do all that bunch of stuff. We do water. And then you have an energy company. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I sometimes think about whether or not we probably shouldn't say this, but whether or not we sort of like got away with this one, I guess. But actually, the answer is, I think, perfectly justifiable. And obviously, I justified it to my uh, LPs. One of the things that's one of the no, 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 no. One of the things one of the things that's really interesting about Enline that very few people know is that they're the best small hydro team in the United States. They actually within that company, they still run a hydro team. So they're doing a huge amount of work on small dams, especially in California for the Bureau of Reclamation. And it provides baseload revenue to the parent company, which actually creates a really interesting structured kind of option for us, which is that like Enline could wash its face doing that as a company all day long and maybe get bought out by a consultancy at some stage and whatever, and it would be a perfectly serviceable outcome for it. And so it's definitely a water company in that way, right? In that they're spending a lot of time fixing dams and you know upgrading equipment and like all of that stuff. But they've put on top of this, this second revenue line, which is derived from steam, basically. And steam is water. But really what we're sort of getting to is like the water energy nexus, right? Is that the, the inextricability of water and energy, and by extension, water and emissions. One of the things that we're trying to sort of figure out is that how comfortable should we be being in like carbon direct removal? It's squarely in the water energy nexus. And I think that steam is to a really weird extent, the way in which the economy still runs, the way in which Costco's are heated to the manufacturing of pharmaceuticals, to lumber, to universities, to well, buildings of all stripes. Everybody still uses boilers. The point is the steam because it's a radically efficient way of conveying heat and it fits in that way. The sort of the point that you're, I think you're trying to get to is that why do you have a differentiated ability to understand what the hell is going on in like an area like that? We decided that we knew enough about it. We knew that they had the hydro expertise, but that actually it was an opportunity to work with a group of founders that really, really knew their onions and had like potential magic on their hands. Their moat is physics. Their um, turbine that uses excess team to run backwards operates at up to 78% efficiency, which is extraordinary. It's very, very difficult to engineer anything that, that size. It's 
deeply unsexy, which is a mode in and of itself, and their um, economics are pretty spectacular. Let me take you to another outlier, because sure. that was unsexy, engineering intensive, more... Long sales cycle, yeah. yeah. Now you have the absolute opposite to that. Certainly do. Just spout, yeah. which is an atmospheric tabletop generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's live on Kickstarter right now, if I'm not mistaken. They may have released it. I didn't realize they had Bad Investor. But yeah, Tyler and Ruben are doing a really good job. Atmospheric quarter generation is yeah. VC's darling. It makes me laugh when, when I see you know, these numbers, which is like, how much has been invested in water VC over the past three, four years? And everybody sees, yeah, it's growing slightly. But, what, but what's the component? But yeah, now you take source out of that. Yeah, things get smaller. And all of a sudden, it gets much smaller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, atmospheric water generation, so all cool. But atmospheric water generation, especially when it's, when it's tabletop, is here to disrupt bottled water. Whatever will disrupt bottled water, I'm super happy with it. Yeah. So you have no support for that. But bottled water itself is here to disrupt utility water. So now if you're backing the company which disrupts bottled water, which itself disrupts utility, so you're in a double disruption game to the rest of your portfolio. Isn't that a stretch? Where I would disagree with you, I think we are ideal world absolutely with you, right? That utilities would provide water. And there, there was a time actually where Mike Spout were doing a little bit of like communication where it was sort of, I mean, it wasn't explicitly, but the sort of the TLDR was like, should we trust the water coming out of our tap? And I was really clearly like, no, 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 you don't need to do this. Like what you're replacing is the insane infrastructure about flying water. I mean, you're from just outside Basel, so to the south of you, I guess, is an awful lot of spring water coming out of the Alps. They're getting stuck on a plane in plastic and it weighs a metric ton per meter cubed it's asinine or fiji water or iceberg yeah, water it's one or, of the yeah. most uttered load of i know you've got liquid death which is a whole thing which if you want to get me started on it i highly <laughs> recommend i think where i disagree with you is that bottled water is a replacement for the tap for two reasons so firstly the people who have moved to bottled water i think are very very unlikely to go back to the tap like just by virtue of the reality of the world whether it's flint michigan or you know whatever all the all the uh, unfortunate uh, incidents that have happened after that and the boil water notices that happen like this is happening because in like it's not the fault of utilities it's happening because utilities are deeply under-resourced it is not their fault they are phenomenal professionals but I prefer to see the world as it is, not how I would like it to be. And once people move to a five-gallon jug of Poland Spring in their kitchen, in a dispenser, or in an office, or whatever it is, it's very unlikely they're going to come back. So let's just deal with the problem kind of like as it is. I think taking chunks out of the selling of... Where are we now? We're at alkaline water for like $3.79 being delivered to people's homes, and they just keep it in the fridge, and they take it out of the fridge, and they do that. Let's just stop doing that. So that's the first thing. That's why I think Spout is super impactful. But they absolutely should not be undermining the quality of utility water because it's super important that we keep as many people on it as we possibly can. But the second thing is access in places where it is much, much more, more difficult for the utility to do their job. That's the conversation I had with Source on that microphone. So I... Yeah, 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 you know, exactly. And you've already been, you've already been here. But I think it's really interesting. There are, there are things, a couple of things about Spout. They think that they can get their bill of materials down to about $80, which means that they can profitably sell this for $120 to solve wherever they would want to do it. To solve very meaningful access problem, especially if you can have that purchase financed. 
and then just given the quality of their engineering, they're now doing about two and a half gallons a day without breaking a sweat. That's more than enough drinking water for a family at full. And it's not selling at, low, at kind of like multiple world access prices at the moment. Of course it's not. It's just the classic Tesla model. You build a thing first for the highest willingness and ability to pay and then you move downstream with scale as costs come down and that's where we hope that they'll they'll get the other thing is that i want to be an impact investor i want to have impact with the money that we're doing but we're not expressly an impact investor we're just an investor my job is to provide the highest returns i can to my like lps i really don't want to have any kind of deleterious effect on the way that i'm doing it but one of the things i really like about spout is that they do something in generally that in water we do very badly. Those guys really understand brand. And the reason why liquid death is such a sort of hideous waste of everybody's time, but it's gonna make a dump truck load of money for the founders and investors, is that they understand marketing inside out and also the go-to-market motion. We cannot be afraid of brand. We cannot be afraid of consumer product. Despite what might happen, like, I'm not gonna be involved, like going to go to invest in a bottled water company anytime soon. I think the idea of trucking water around is stupid. And it also like long-term, I don't think makes any sense. And so like, if you can ride that for a bit, like that's fine, but those businesses are gonna get like slowly accreted away. I hope by spout, it fits in within our portfolio. It takes up a, a, a position where it gives us exposure to the overall consumer, which has a massive amount of purchasing power. It can scale very fast because it's only one transaction away and then it's on the countertop. They really, really understand marketing. And so they've got, they're, they're within the atmospheric water generation. They're in a market where brand matters. And so that's a really important part of their moat. It goes back to the business model. Unit economics are good. It's relatively affordable to the customer. Have there been like Juicero examples at the countertop? Yes, of course they have. Is this without risk? Absolutely not. It is a risky endeavor. All of these companies are risky endeavors. But I think that they have a shot of building a really big company. And in the end, like it's my job to try and identify potentially really big companies in this area. But we agree that it's the absolute other side of what you were explaining in the beginning of that sector might be conservative or whatever we want to call it. But that means that, how do you define it? Low acquisition costs, long sure. lifetime value. Oh, it's yeah, it's a completely different business. Sure, but again, B2C, if you're building so... a portfolio. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally, yeah, no, absolutely. And yes, for sure, love those businesses. Also love businesses that can profitably sell a zillion units in a normal B2C model. There are many ways to consider this gap. Are we closer, closer to that model? Like, have we done a zillion different, like, direct-to-consumer companies no but we think we found the right founders in Ruben and Tyler who were not able to actually do the engineering so there was a German company which will remain unnamed that like with 17 million dollars at the series a failed to do what Spout did on 250 grand in their garage these are very serious engineers and actually having a diversity of business models within the portfolio I would argue is good you mentioned portfolio building and yep. I was trying to to draft patterns in your portfolio so I mentioned you have 16 company which I could divide in multiple of eight which is a 611 you have six kind of traditional ones not traditional sure. but in the conventional exception of what you would expect from a water entrepreneur yeah, I agree with that. one on the edge and then one outlier so the two outliers we just discussed them it's spout two to me sure spout and endline uh, energy so the traditional ones you have a clarity I'd love to have Julie at some point on that, yeah. on that microphone. 2S Water, Liger, yeah. Sewer AI, Beagle, Swift Comply, Aqua Fortress, and Civil Grid. Okay. And on the edge to me would be Erie Green, mm -hmm. Precision Watering for your loan. Sounds like a bit in this B2C or B2B2C sure. word. And Cloud to Street because... For Selling to insurance companies. Yeah, much different reasons. Yeah, It's hardcore B2B. <laughs> yeah. 
is it a coincidence, this 611, or is it your way to design your portfolio? Again, really excellent question. Partially, it's about portfolio design. Portfolio construction is one of the only uh, free lunches. And one of the things about being a, a sort of a first-time fund and first-time manager, there's a, a quote from a really great investor out in uh, San Francisco, which is, you only understand how important portfolio construction is in venture when you've done it wrong. <laughs> and so it was really important to me that we were looking for diversity across various sectors of water but also diversity across business models. But really, in terms of the appraisal, I think about what unites them, right? Is that each of them exhibits a very deep set of strength that I think add up to a really compelling argument around about why this business, whether it's B2C, B2B, B2B2C, whatever, can be really big, especially relative to the entry price. I was surprised that you didn't pull, pull out Beagle as one of the sort of the outliers like it's not really kind of silicon valley gospel in the venture industry to go around investing in plumbing companies it just i'm working so for gf piping systems so, f so maybe for me sure. beagle wasn't really an outlier <laughs> sure okay in general not a good idea but like paul has very distinct advantages he's solving a really profound pain point that he was in an unfair position to uh, exploit and also everybody likes outcomes right we were talking about this so my local plumber in London, it's called Pimlico Plumbers. They drive around in blue vans. They always have like beautifully turned out and their vans are exceptionally well organized and they have great telemetry and they do an amazing job, super clean, unbelievably high quality. They're twice the price of everyone else and you can never get an appointment because they're always booked. They just sold to KKR for $450 million last year. And like people are saying that like investing in a plumbing company is not a good idea as a venture investment. I obviously understand like services businesses and like whatever, but like great businesses can come from anywhere and for all sorts of reasons, just like the deployment of the potential owning of that relationship, especially in the context of where plumbing is at the moment. It makes me very excited every time I talk about it. But you're highlighting a, a clear bias, which is to me, piping system was a bit more down my alley. So I was a bit less surprised by sure. that than it was by the fact that you can survey the floods from satellites. So to me, that was a bit sure. more of an outer word, but everybody yeah. has his bias. I'm not I think the best way to think about, uh, you know, our overall decisions and how they look together is that we have an, uh, an 18-section due diligence. Well, our overall due diligence is a lot longer than that. And that, that's when you really have to go and go, go into the legals and details and all the rest of it. But the initial appraisal, 18 sections, four to six sub questions per section. Is that of, your famous checklist? Of prompts. Yeah, this is the checklist. And when someone runs the table, but it's not like, is this B2B SaaS? It's the encapsulation of all of the things that over the last eight years of specializing in, I guess, 13 years of being here kind of in and around water is the distillation with the input from Tons of different people that I used to work with, currently work with, I'm about to work with. It's the encapsulation of what we think is important to look for as the leading indicators of the outcome. Cloud Street runs that list. Swift Comply runs that list. Irigreen runs that list. Beagle does all of it. Like it can be relatively agnostic, but while also taking into account the esoteria of the water sector. One other thing I will say in terms of something like Spout. Spout's very difficult. Getting traction in consumers super difficult. The like when you do it, it's like spectacular, and in many ways, it's quite a lot easier. A business. There are no points for difficulty in investing, and I think maybe why the hell are you saying that out loud, Tom? Because it sounds like investing in water is like really difficult. Personally, I feel like we know enough as a team. I'm not saying that we've demystified anything. The proof will be in the results, kind of in the in the end. We, I think, have a credible 
like way of understanding relatively early whether or not there is a real there there and i would just point you to you know imagine h2o's and this is not all my decisions like at all but like an 80 percent survival rate out of an accelerator and again i really this is not in my work not even remotely all my work but like we really are informed by a lot of the work that we did at Imagine H2O, and that's 13 years of companies with 80% still in business. And the court is not fully cut, if I'm right. Nimesh Modak is one of your advisors. He is. He is. He's on eyes and ears out in uh, Southeast Asia. He's been very, very busy with Imagine H2O Asia, but we speak very often. He's such a, I shouldn't say this out loud, but I kind of, he's such a wonderful person. He's a really, really great guy. I still very much consider myself part of the Imagine H2O family. I try to be as useful as I possibly can. We sponsored an event uh, with them at WefTech last year, which felt really nice. And I really want to, you know, hopefully build this into a financial position where we can be contributors to the amazing philanthropic work that they do. From your website, I got that you have a 691 companies pipeline. I'm mean, slightly beyond that now, but yeah. Why do you have a pipeline? How do you watch them? And it's all companies which at some point will go through your checklist and which you might invest in? Or is it just genuine... So market intelligence. These are the companies that for whatever reason have found their way to us. Sometimes it's us going to find them. More often than not, it's people finding us, which is great. I feel like we've become relatively difficult to miss if you're building a water company. But our job as a specialist, miss nothing. We have to see everything that is created in the world to make sure that we really understand. We're just not allowed to miss things. You can be focused, but the price of being focused is you have to see everything. And you have to have a credible reason. Like the biggest sin in venture is the is the sin of omission of something goes really big, especially if you don't have a good reason for why you didn't do it. So actually that sort of basically 700 number doesn't quite capture a lot of the stuff that we see that's kind of, it just isn't a fit or it's like insane or whatever. And we just don't capture it. We're doing a much better job now because my colleague Jenny Graham is absolutely excellent and she's spending more time kind of on the pipeline. But it's just us tracking the companies that we see it's also quite a kind of a manageable universe but the number is really steady what's really encouraging is what, what we thought would happen is happening is that the overall quality of the people starting companies in water is going up and to the right at a rate of knots and i just think it's going to get more and more popular as a destination for really smart entrepreneurial minds because you get these two things right you've got this ridiculously big market that basically literally can't go backwards it can't get less popular it's not like crypto it's a trillion dollars in capex and opex before you get to ag aquaculture hardware and consumer and there's less competition and there are excuse my french but shitload of problems to solve so we're very confident that we're going to go and see more and more but yeah it's a it's been a great field of companies to pick from i have to be cautious over time so i will limit my segues i have <laughs> one last question in this deep dive which is how are you in terms of rollout of your capital? Do you still have money in your initial funds? Are you opening more funds? I'm not actually like legally allowed to, to talk about whether or not I'm doing any fundraising. We are, we're basically done with the first fund. The concentration of the effort is doing whatever we can to help this group of 16 companies be as successful as they can possibly be. And hopefully there will be new funds in our in our future. Hopefully we can expand the platform. Hopefully we can continue to be the partner to all sorts of like really brilliant entrepreneurs and, and fund them throughout their life cycle. It's been such a privilege and an honor, especially with the people that I get to work with to be able to do this first fund and, and get it out there into the world. As I said, I'll behave and I'll stop here for the deep dive. That's also good because I have questions left, which means we should do a sequel at some point. That would be really fun. For today, I'd propose you to switch to the rapid fire questions. It's 
time for the rapid fire questions. What is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? I think it's the creation of the BIV platform. Like the, the, the work of being useful to founders is never done. And it's a really fascinating intellectual exercise to be able to build an entity that can make a meaningful difference in the progress and growth of companies that are as uh, potentially impactful and meaningful as the ones that we back. Can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way? Oh my God, I feel like I complain about the process of acquiring experience all the time. Information flows are really important. And if you get them wrong, bad stuff can happen. Do you have a concrete example? No. Okay. <laughs> is there something you're doing today in your job that you will not be doing in 10 years? I probably won't be doing as much administration as I'm doing. So the team will be? Yeah. Yeah. What is the trend to watch out for in the water sector? Well, I think it's the most powerful one, which is just the secular tailwinds that are just making this into a more and more obvious commercial opportunity. Whether you're a small company, big company, mid-sized company, like you're an entrepreneur looking for a, something to place to go and solve things where you're looking to something to work. Like the most important trend is that this is a behemoth that is going one way upwards and there is nothing that anybody can do to stop it. And last question, if I instantly became your assistant so you can delegate something to me, what is the number one thing you delegate? I never said I would do it. God, it's so boring. I, I like the admin again. I'm just really lucky. I really like my job and I like all sort of parts of it. But the there's some nuts and bolts stuff that I have to do at the moment, which would be really helpful if I didn't have to do. And if you have someone to recommend me that I should definitely invite on that microphone as soon as possible, who would it be? Well, you've heard Julie Mullen from McClarity is a good one. Yeah, she would be great. John Bertrand at Doppler is really good. Any of our founders are really, really great. I don't know whether you've already spoken to Peter Fisk, and I think you'd be a really, really good interview of Gary White. I'm doing a session with him in, in about a week. I think he's the best uh, entrepreneur possibly ever, and Water.org is a spectacular uh, organization. I've been trying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see, if we can make that, we'll see if we can make that happen. Tom, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. And I hope to have a sequel with you at some point. Yeah, fantastic. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.